You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Hello and thank you everybody for coming. I'm very pleased to be here this evening to talk to Tana about the Witch Elm and a lot more besides. Um, as you all know, as you, uh, Tana is one of Ireland's most beloved and most groundbreaking crime writers and uh, she, her first novel, In the Woods, appeared 2007. Yeah, so, tw- and since then she has published five more books about the Dublin murder squad but The Witch Elm is her first standalone novel. And I know some of you will have read it already, but it hasn't been out for that long. So for those who haven't, Tana, um, can you tell us a bit about, I suppose, Toby Hennessy, the protagonist of The Witch Elm, and, and what Toby is like when we meet him at the start of the novel? Well, at the start of the book, anyway, Toby is basically a young guy who's had a charmed life. He's got a good job. He's from a nice, happy, affluent Dublin family. He's got a girlfriend who loves him. He's got good friends. He's just got himself out of a little thing he got into mm-hmm. at work that could have gone very wrong, but he managed to talk his way out of it, mm-hmm. and everything is basically going his way. Mm-hmm. But then on the first night of the book, he is attacked by burglars in his apartment and winds up with a head injury and both physical and psychological consequences to that. And so the person he is and the life he's able to lead changes. Mm. And one of the characters, one of his best friends at the beginning of the book, semi-jokingly, but not quite, calls him a lucky little prick. And, uh, you know, a lot of the, you know, what you explore in the book is the concept of luck and, and privilege, and I suppose, and what it does to somebody. Uh, what, what did you want to, to say or to, to explore on that topic? That's actually kind of where the book came from, was the idea of, I've been thinking a lot about luck and its connection to empathy, like how if we're too lucky in Mm. some area of life, it can stunt the growth of empathy. It can be very hard. If you've had some area of life very easy, it can be hard to to keep in mind that other people maybe aren't having the same experience Mm. of life in that way as you are. Just my example that I've been using, I was lucky enough to have a pretty happy childhood, like not Mm. perfect, but any kind of dysfunction was well within normal limits. I was always loved and supported. And as I got older, if a friend was telling me about something that was very definitely not within normal limits, about a really awful family or awful childhood, there would be a part of my mind going, ah, God, it can't really have been that bad. They must be exaggerating a bit. Not because I in any way doubted the person or thought they weren't telling the truth, but simply because this was so far outside my frame of reference that I just couldn't take in that it was real. Mm. And I think that's a danger with too much luck that we forget that our experience doesn't in fact define it all. I mean, I grew up, I realized my experience doesn't define everyone else's reality and that other people's realities can be very different. But I thought, what about somebody who's been lucky in every possible way starting off? You know, he's from an affluent family, he's white, he's male, he's straight, he's good looking, he's intelligent, he's from a loving family, he's um, physically and mentally healthy, which I think is something that's very easy to take for granted, yeah. if you have. He has friends. He's, yeah, you know, he has he's, friends. He's charming. charming. Yeah. He, basically, all the coin flips have gone his way. 
And what would that do to his sense of empathy? What would that do to his ability to realize that other people may be living just the day-to-day -day experience in a very different world mm. from the one he's living in? And then what if his luck gets taken away in some, by some catastrophic event? How would he deal with being, in a person, with being a person living in a world that is no longer set up to be Toby-friendly? Mm. And, you know, as, as you, you say in the book, it is the, what, what is he if he's not the, the sum of all these lucky, you know, sets of circumstances? You know, it is quite a, an existential question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, kind of is. How much um, of us is our luck? Who are yeah. we if our luck is different? Who would we be? if our luck was different. I mean, there's one character who at one point um, is confessing, they're all quite drunk, and is confessing to, have done so to having done something that's not very good, and catches a little bit of shock from the other two. And she says, well, but suppose my life had just gone a little bit differently. Suppose I'd met somebody different on that day. I wouldn't have done this. But it wouldn't be because I was a better person. Yeah. It would simply be because the dice had rolled differently. And what does that say about who you are? How much does your luck determine your sense of self. And he's been so dependent on that yeah. always, on his luck to define him, that he doesn't really have any coherent sense of who he is without that luck. And he has to piece it together in the aftermath of this attack. When the luck is gone, he has to try and piece together who he is without it. It doesn't come easy. No, it certainly does not. Yeah. Um, and can you read us just a short, a short, a few pages from the yeah, book to give, to give those who haven't read it a, a bit of a, a taster of Toby and... Toby, this is Toby pre-everything yes. going wrong, going a little bit wrong. Toby, right at the beginning. That night. I know there are an infinite number of places to begin any story, and I'm well aware that everyone else involved in this one would take issue with my choice. I can just see the wry lift at the corner of Susanna's mouth. Here, Leon's snort of pure derision. But I can't help it. For me, it all goes back to that night. The dark, corroded hinge between before and after, the slipped-in sheet of trick glass that tints everything on one side in its own murky colors and leaves everything on the other luminous, achingly close, untouched and untouchable. Even though it's demonstrably nonsense, the skull had already been tucked away in its cranny for years by that point, after all, and I think it's pretty clear that it would have resurfaced that summer regardless. I can't help believing, at some level deeper than logic, that none of this would ever have happened without that night. It started out feeling like a good night. Great night, actually. It was a Friday in April, the first day that had really felt like spring, and I was out with my two best mates from school. Hogan's was buzzing. All the girls' hair softened to flightiness by the day's warmth and the guys' sleeves rolled up, layers of talk and laughter packing the air till the music was just a subliminal, cheery reggae boom, boom, boom coming up from the floor into your feet. I was high as a kite, not on coke or anything. There had been a bit of hassle at work earlier that week, but that day I had sorted it all out, and the triumph was making me a little giddy. I kept catching myself talking too fast or knocking back a swallow of my pint with a flourish. An extremely pretty brunette at the next table was checking me out, giving me just a second too much smile when my eye happened to land on her. <clears throat> I wasn't going to do anything about it. I had a really great girlfriend and no intention of cheating on her, but it was fun to know I hadn't lost my touch. She fancies you, Declan said, nodding sideways at the brunette who was throwing her head back extravagantly as she laughed at her friend's joke. She's got good taste. 
How's Melissa? Sean asked, which I thought was unnecessary. Even if it hadn't been for Melissa, the brunette wasn't my type. She had dramatic curves, barely contained by a tight retro red dress, and she looked like she would have been happier in some Gauloise-ridden bistro watching several guys have a knife fight over her. Great, I said, which was true, as always. Melissa was the opposite of the brunette. Small, sweet-faced, with ruffled blonde hair and a sprinkle of freckles, drawn by nature towards things that made her and everyone around her happy. Bright flowered dresses and soft cotton, baking her own bread, dancing to whatever came on the radio, picnics with cloth napkins and ridiculous cheeses. It had been days since I'd seen her, and the thought of her made me crave everything about her. Her laugh, her nose burrowing into my neck, the honeysuckle smell of her hair. She is great, Sean told me, a little too meaningfully. She is, yeah. I'm the one who just said she's great. I'm the one going out with her. I know she's great. She's great. Are you speeding? Deck wanted to know. I'm high on your company. You, dude, you're the human equivalent of the purest, whitest Columbia. You are speeding. Sure, you stingy bastard. I am clean as a baby's arse, you scrounging git. Then what are you doing eyeing up your woman? She's beautiful. A man can appreciate a thing of beauty without... Too much coffee, Sean said. Get more of that down you. That'll sort you out. He was pointing at my pint. Anything for you, I said, and sank most of what was left. <sighs> she is only gorgeous, Deck said, eyeing the brunette wistfully. What a waste. Go for it, I said. He wouldn't. He never did. Right. Go on while she's looking over. She's not looking at me. She's looking at you, as usual. Deck was stocky and tightly wound, with glasses and a mop of unruly copper hair. He was actually okay looking, but somewhere along the way, he had convinced himself that he wasn't, with predictable consequences. Hey, Sean said, mock wounded. Birds look at me. They do, yeah. They're wondering if you're blind or if you're wearing that shirt on a dare. Jealousy, Sean said sadly, shaking his head. Sean was a big guy, six foot two, with a broad, open face, and his rugby muscle only starting to soften. He did, in fact, get plenty of female attention, although that was wasted too, since he'd been happily with the same girl since school. It's an ugly thing. Don't worry, I reassured Deck. It's all about to change for you with the... I nodded subtly in the direction of his head. The what? You know, those. I darted a quick point at my hairline. What are you on about? Leaning in discreetly across the table, keeping my voice down. The plugs. They play to you, man. I don't have fucking hair plugs. They're nothing to be ashamed of. All the big stars are getting them these days. Robbie Williams, Bono. Which, of course, outraged Deck even more. There's nothing wrong with my bleeding hair. But that's what I'm saying. They look great. No, they're not obvious, Sean reassured him. Not saying they're obvious. Just nice, you know? They're not obvious because they don't exist. I don't have... Come on, I said, I can see them here and get off me. I know. Let's ask your woman what she thinks. I started to signal to the brunette. No, 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 Toby, I'm serious. I'm going to actually kill you. Deck was grabbing at my waving hand. I dodged. It's the perfect conversation starter, Sean pointed out. You didn't know how to get talking to her, right? Here's your chance. Fuck you, Deck told us, abandoning the attempt to catch my hand and standing up. You're a pair of shite hawks, do you know that? 
Aw, Dak, I said, don't leave us. I'm going to the Jacks to give you two a chance to pull yourselves together. You, Chuckles, to Sean, it's your round. Checking that they're all in place, Sean told me, aside, motioning to his hairline. You messed them up. See that one there? It's gone up. Deck gave us both a finger and started off through the crowd towards the jacks, trying to stay dignified as he edged between buttocks and waving pints, and concentrating hard on ignoring both our burst of laughter and the brunette. He actually fell for that for a minute there, Sean said. Egypt. Same again. And he headed up to the bar. After that, my memory of the evening gets patchy for a while. Of course, in its aftermath, I went over it a million times, obsessively, combing every thread to find the knot that set the pattern changing beyond recovery, hoping there was just one detail whose significance I'd missed, a tiny keystone around which all the pieces would slot into place and the hole would flash jackpot rings of multicolored light while I leaped up shouting, Eureka! The missing chunks didn't help matters. Very common, the doctors said reassuringly. Completely normal, oh, so very, very normal. A lot came back along the way, and I picked what I could from Sean's memory and Dex, laboriously pieced the evening together like an old fresco from husband and fragments and educated inferences. But how could I know for sure what was in the blank spaces? Did I shoulder someone at the bar? Did I talk too loudly? riding high in my euphoria balloon, or throw out an arm in some expansive gesture and catch someone's pint? Was the brunette's roid rat X snarling in some unnoticed corner? I had never thought of myself as the kind of person who goes looking for trouble, but nothing seemed out of the question. Not anymore. Well, that was Toby on the cusp of becoming, essentially, an unreliable mm. narrator. To himself as well, yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, that's one of the, the most um, effective aspects of the book, I think, is the fact that Toby is an unreliable narrator, but he, he as you say, he is an unreliable narrator to, to himself. And, you know, as was Rob in, mm. in your first novel. What is it about the idea, because it is quite a terrifying one, of somebody not being able to trust their own version of a story. So it's not just, you know, it's, a, it's like an, an extra dimension for the reader almost. Do you know where I think that comes from, actually? I think that comes from, I read Stephen King's It when I was way too young and should not have been reading It. And it terrified the bejesus out of me. And it wasn't, like, it wasn't the scary clown, right? It was that idea, the bit at the beginning, where the, ki where the kids are all, um, they're grown up mm. and they've got this memory of something terrible that happened when they were kids together, but they can't keep hold of it. Every yes. time one of them gets hold of that, their, that memory, it gets eroded in some way. It gets mm. deliberately, there's some force taking it out of their minds again. Mm. And that completely terrified me, this idea that your mind is not a reliable thing. It is something that can be changed and can be shifted and your memory can be under siege. And the fact that your, your own mind can't necessarily be trusted and won't yeah. necessarily stay the same. And I think that came up, I don't, you know, however many years later, <laughs> that showed up in, in the woods and it shows up again here. And it goes, it's not just Toby's presence that becomes mm. unreliable, it's his past. He realizes in the course of the book that he doesn't actually know what his past is. Either yeah. the skull shows up in a tree in the family 
in the garden of the family home. And he realizes that the past he thought he had might not be the one that anyone else is experiencing alongside him. And is that, you know, something, you know, it's, it's something you've returned to, to as a writer. Is it because it is something that scares you yourself? I mean, how much of a driver do you think the, the elements that you find existentially troubling yourself actually push you to explore them in fiction? I think crime fiction in particular is a real locus for that kind of exploration. Mm. People, uh, we turn to crime, to, to mystery fiction, to understand things that we find either frightening or incomprehensible. I mean, yeah. most of it turns around murder, and that's for the vast majority of us who have never killed anybody or wanted to. <laughs> we seriously, <hope>. anyway, <laughs> we hope. Um, that's a huge, it's very, very hard to understand. Yeah. How can somebody take that huge step of killing another person, and in particular, how can somebody who is not a psychopath, who is not anything that we would term evil, be brought from just a normal life? What would take them from that point to taking another person's life, doing something that immense? And so I think because crime fiction tends to spin around that huge question of who we are and how we can be brought to places where we are not who we thought we were, I think it makes it a natural kind of location for that kind of exploration of the scary questions about identity and human nature. I think yeah. it's, a, it's a natural point for those to come through. And uh, with, with Toby, I mean, we got a glimpse of him there in his, uh, his old self. Yeah. And even though he was being, you know, a bit of a... Um, I'm not sure how much one can swear on, on the stage. But I suddenly realised that halfway through the excerpt. He's <laughs> 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 Bit of an arsehole to his, his poor old yeah. pal deck, but it is genuinely it's good humour. It's, it's just, yeah, it's good humour. Like, he actually, when you read the book, is not a nasty or he's not on the, in, in many ways, at least consciously, he's not somebody who sort of enjoys wielding his luck and, and privilege. How important was it to you yeah. that he wasn't just a, you know, an obnoxious, privileged private school uh, golden boy playing wanker. I really didn't want him to be a yeah. wanker. I really didn't. Like, that was important. Because that's not interesting. Mm. The idea that a wanker may have at some point in his earlier life acted like a wanker, well, you know, yeah. big surprise. 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 Yeah, yeah, exactly. But th And that's not interesting psychologically. What's interesting is somebody who's basically a decent guy. He's mm. generous, he's kind, he will mm. go out of his way mm. for people who he cares about. He's... he's it, He's never been a bully. He's never used mm. that power and luck that he could have used. Because yeah, somebody yeah. like that could easily have picked on other people in school or along the way. He never did any of that. Mm. What's interesting is him discovering or questioning whether that's enough to make him a decent person. Yeah. Because he's, he may never have been cruel, but he has been oblivious, which yeah. is what he realizes through the book. And uh, being oblivious can cause damage. Being unaware of the fact that other people are having these experiences and that what you do very casually, thinking it's just a small thing, can cause immense damage. Being unaware of the mm. effect that you have on the other people around you. That can be very destructive. And I thought that was more interesting, was seeing somebody struggle with the consequences of his own obliviousness and try to reevaluate himself within that context. Yeah. 
And that, you're right, I mean, that is what makes them so interesting, as opposed to somebody Absolutely. just getting their comeuppance, which, yes. you know, which would be the case if he was just a, a sort of a fallen golden boy yeah. um, with, you know, who had just been reveling in his, in his privilege. Uh, but we've touched on the, the skull that turns up. Um, so at the, at the core of the book is this... Uh, skull and possibly more than just a skull. <laughs> uh, I'm being very careful with spoilers, but that appears in a tree in the garden of the Hennessy family family home. Um, and I know you were inspired with that that very striking image by a real life case. How did you find out about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. This was this book is kind of to a large extent my brother's fault because oh. just at the point where I should probably be paying him a percentage, you know. Don't <laughs> say that in public, now. There's too many yeah. people who are witnesses. Um, no, just at the point where I was kind of bouncing around that idea of luck and empathy and obliviousness, he sent me a link to the story of Bella and the Witch Elm, which I think a fair few people have heard of. But in 1943, a bunch of kids in in Hadley Wood in England were out climbing trees in a wood, and they found down inside the hollow of a witch elm a skull, which turned out to have the rest of a skeleton attached to it. It was a skeleton of a woman who had been there for about 18 months, and nobody, knew, nobody still knows to this day who she was or what had happened to her. But graffiti started to appear around the area and have done periodically mm -hmm. since, saying, who put Bella in the witch elm? Now, why they're calling her Bella, no one no one knows. But he sent me this, a link to this story with an email that said, this sounds like a Tana French novel. <laughs> At the time I was like, oh gee, thanks. <laughs> I didn't know whether to be like disturbed or flattered, but in fairness, he turned yeah. out to be right. And it just, it stuck with me, that, that image of the skull kind of caught in this limbo between earth and air mm. and then resurfacing. And demanding action. Yeah. Buried and not buried yeah. at the same time. Exactly. It is a very haunting concept. And the fact that, as one of the, again, no spoilers, but the fact that it's been there for a while. I won't say how long. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's been there while everything else has been going on, gone around it. Um, and the, again, it's not a spoiler to say that uh, the police get involved when, they would. when this, skull, <laughs> this uh, body is found. And this is the first time that you have written a novel from the other side of that thin blue line, because obviously all the, the six books in the, in the Dublin Murder Squad sequence are narrated by different members of the, of the Garda um, detective squad. And this is what it's like, I suppose, to be, to be on the other side. What drew you... Was there ever a, 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 a moment when you considered bringing in the voice, bringing in that perspective into this story? Or was I, it always yeah. going to be Toby? No, it was always going to be Toby. That was one of the things that kind of turned me on to doing a standalone. Mm -hmm. Because I'd been thinking a lot about the fact that I'd looked at the process of a murder investigation from the detective standpoint six times now. Mm -hmm. I kept thinking about any investigation has a lot of other perspectives involved. You've got, you know, you've got the murder, you've got witnesses, you've got mm -hmm. suspects, you've got victims. And all of those perspectives have to be completely different from the detectives. For the detective, all this procedural stuff, you know, the investigation, this is a source of power and mm. control. This is how they reimpose order on chaos. This is how they are driving it. They know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing everything. But if you're coming at it from any of those other perspectives, it has to be the opposite. You, it's, 
The investigation is like this thing that barrels into your life and turns it upside down. You have no control. Mm. You don't even know who you are within this. Are you a witness or a suspect? You have no idea who you are or why they're doing any of what they're doing. It's a force of um, chaos and disruption, and it's probably terrifying. Yeah. And I thought those perspectives were worth giving a voice to. And at various points in the book, Toby's all of those. Yes, and, and the, you know, they, they can just sort of happen to you effectively. Yeah. You don't really have a say in it. They, they are like, as you say, a force of nature almost. And I, I know yeah. that you, you do have a, a Garda insider. Or Bless a, him. Um, how did he help you, you know, I suppose, channel what it feels like to be on the other side? Oh, he would, he's brilliant. He's a retired detective who over the last, God, it's like, I don't even know how long it is now, but over the last however long, he's answered such a wild variety of questions for me. Like I, I ring him up and ask him anything from specifics to broad questions where I barely know what I need to know, but he'll tell me stories as well for atmosphere. And he, this is years back when I was doing, I can't remember which book, I rang him up and said, how would you go about interviewing a suspect? under these conditions. And he went, oh, well, I do it like this. And he gave me a really kind of quick off-the-cuff demonstration using me as the supposed suspect. And it was a revelation because he switched mode like that from this lovely, friendly, easygoing, chilled Your out friend, guy. Yeah, you're on the same side. To this force of nature who was just barreling at you like a train. And it's not that he was aggressive exactly. It's just that he was after something. He was going to get it and nothing was going to stop him. And that, I mean, I was only on the phone and this was a friend doing me a yeah. favor and I still found myself going, whoa. <laughs> you know? And that feeling stayed with me of what it would be like to be on the wrong side of that if it lasted longer than five minutes. Yeah. And do you think that the seeds were sown then that it was inevitable that you were going to, to turn to the other side, <laughs> so to <laughs> yeah. speak? Yeah, um, I think so. I think that was the yeah. moment where I went, I, I need to see what that would do to a character, yeah. what that would mean to a character. And in particular, someone who's not feeling very strong or very stable at that moment anyway, which yeah. Toby, after being so badly beaten up and so badly damaged mentally mm -hmm. as well as physically, he's not at his strongest anyway. So when this force comes at him, he's in no condition to withstand yeah. it. Now, other characters withstand it a little bit better and they... Yeah. they in different ways. Yeah, yeah. and they... <laughs> take back a little bit more control. But Toby at this point is feeling like any sense of agency or control has mm. been taken away from him already by, by the attack, by the brain injury, by the PTSD. And so this extra, extra, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, this investigation which strips away even more of his sense of agency, of him, his sense of himself as the protagonist in his own life, kind of spurs him to try and take back some of that control and to try and re-establish himself as the protagonist within his own life, which really doesn't go the way he wants it to no, at all. No, it doesn't. Well, that's also not a no spoiler. spoiler. I, think you could, it I don't think it would be a town of French book if everything was like, <laughs> and then he's grabbed. When in doubt, mess with the character's yeah. head. No, really, I do, though, because it's not... It sounds horrible, even mm. though they're just imaginary people, but... Watching someone who's just contented and happy and not struggling, it's not interesting. You know, it's like it's like watching some guy who's sitting on the sofa playing Xbox and eating chips. It's like okay. he's delighted with yeah. himself. It's great, that's lovely. <laughs> but you don't want to watch that for four hours. What we're interested in as readers is someone who is struggling with things, who is mm. fighting 
not just things coming at you from outside, but also things rising up from inside that you need to deal with. Watching that, because we all have those struggles and we all have those times where thing, things seem to be very hard to deal with both from outside mm. and from within ourselves, so that's what we want to read about it. So, when in doubt, mess with your character's <laughs> head. <laughs> and when you started it, um, you know, when you were out a new novel, how... Uh, how sure are you of the direction in which it is going to go? <laughs> you know, to have a big sort of, you know, ch uh, homeland wall chart <laughs> with lots of strings oh, yeah, attached to things. No, I really wish I did. I know writers who do that. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm right. really jealous of them because they've got it all plot. Like every chapter, they've got the outline before they start mm -hmm. writing, and they know there is a book in there somewhere. Somewhere. Like they know, but they know that the pieces are going to come together. They know where this subplot that they've started off. They know how it fits together mm. with the main plot. And, that it's going to have a logical ending. No, I, I can't work that way, though. I start off with, I've got a main character, a narrator. Mm. I've got a, usually a core location. Like, in this case, it's, it's the Ivy House. It's sort of Toby's family's ancestral home, almost. And I've got, like, a very basic premise. In this case, the, the attack and the skull. And that's it. I just sort of dive in and hope that mm. I'll figure it out and that there will, in fact, be a book there at the bottom <laughs> when I finish diving. I figure... It's because I come from an acting background. I was an actor mm. for years before this crept up on me. And I think if you're an actor, you're always coming at it from the point of view of the character. Mm. That's, the plot comes out of the characters rather than the other way around. And I've got to write the characters for a while to get to know who they are, figure them out, before I know who would do what and yeah. why. So, like, I don't know who done it when I start a book. I have to figure I'm that out from so the characters. I'm so fascinated by that, that the fact that, you know, you have... A murder in mm. most of the books. I don't know how to get a book moving without a dead body <laughs> in there to get the action. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when a doubt again, just kill somebody. Yeah, so, right. you know. Dump in a body. <laughs> but, uh, you know, when um, I've, the idea that you're feeling your way in there is so interesting because when you read the finished results, it does not feel like somebody just you know, Thank making you. it up as it goes along. There is a sense of control in there. Uh, how does that come about? A lot of rewrites. A lot of rewrites, which I, I hate rewriting. I was going to say. But every now, like, you have to. It's, it's, it's the price you've got to pay. Yeah. If you want to do this kind of by the seat of your pants, you have to be willing to go, to get to chapter six and go, oh, crap, that is the murder, and that means yeah. chapter three is all wrong, and I'm going to have to go back and, and rewrite ditch it. it. Yeah, that. ditch it and start over. From and have there ever been any, you know, really out of the left field sort of revelations that have caused entire book rewrites, or is it mostly, you know, are you, how far into it usually are you when you, you realise where you're sort of heading towards the end? Well, there are always kind of more and more bits that you find as you go along, which... Mm for me, is one of the points of, of doing it the way I do, because I'm, I'm hoping that since things surprise me as I'm going along, I'm hoping they'll have the same kind of, oh, my God, I didn't see that coming, but it feels right. For th that same sensation for the reader, at least, you know, you hope so. You keep your fingers crossed. There's never been anything that meant I had to ditch it all and start from scratch. What it tends to be more often is that you you realise that something's actually, you've been subconsciously seeding something partway, mm but you have to go back and scrape out the bits that you thought you were putting in there very cleverly to make it point yeah. in this direction. And you realise that 
you know, this direction was wrong yeah. all along. You don't need to do that. So you have to go out and take out all the stuff that you thought you were being so smart with and make sure <sighs> that this other character is strengthened up because they're going yeah. to be needed down the line. And there, there was a moment when I realised writing this book, kind of maybe two-thirds of the way through, that Toby was going to have to do something right at the end of the book that I had not, in fact, planned on him doing. Yes. And that I was going to have to... It wasn't exactly re rewrites. It was more that I was going to have to build towards that yes, smoothly because yeah. the build on something, you know, fairly major, which this mm. is, you have to get that. Uh, you have to start that a long way yes, off. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it can't just be a sort of, of and then this happens then at this the happens. end. Yeah. No, you've got to build up speed for takeoff yes. or something like that. So I had to go back okay. and make sure that that was in there. That arc was in there. And do you enjoy, as somebody who is very, you know, sort of led by the characters? Do you enjoy the um, the actual writing process, the sort of, you know, sitting at the desk, getting the head down, getting however many words a day, or um, or are you one of the writers who it is like they're primarily, you, it's like drawing blood from a stone? No, I really enjoy it. Mostly yeah. I do. I mean... Obviously, there are patches where you're going, what the hell am I doing? This is yeah. not working. This is not a book. I'm going mean, to... There's always one point in every book where I go out and tell my husband, I'm going to call my agent and tell him I want to go back to being a broke actor because I can't <laughs> do this anymore. You know, there's always that yeah. one day. And I think it's, it's a little... I'm still getting used to the, the solitude of it. Yeah. Because, again, coming from acting, when, when you have that day where it's just it's not working and it's all sticky and you don't know what you're doing, then the other person in the scene will will throw you something mm. that, that gets you moving in, or the director will go, we'll try it this way. And then you're, you're back on track. Yeah. You've got someone to bounce off yeah. and sort of, you know, spark ideas off. Or yeah, spark somebody else's energy or yeah. coming at you, and then you can use that and you can bounce off it. Whereas this, it's, it's like me, and I've, I'd better find my way out of this yeah. because I have a deadline. I have people who are <laughs> out there doing their jobs and expecting me to do mine. But in general, no, I really, I love it. Talking yeah. about luck, I feel just <laughs> tremendously lucky to do this because... Again, if you're in the arts, yeah. the ultimate definition of success is that you get to do this all day long. You don't mm. need the day job anymore. Yeah. You have the, the huge joy of being allowed to do this without having to, to wrangle you know, whatever other job. Yeah. And do it for like doing. an hour every evening at most. If yeah, you're lucky after kids But also in acting, you're reliant on someone else's permission to work. You, yeah. know, you, you need somebody to hire you. Whereas this, no one can stop me. I've got a biro and nobody can stop me. And I still haven't got over that. I still haven't got over that feeling of, wow, I can work every day. And it's, it's still pretty great. When you said biro there, how much do you do longhand? I kind of tend to start off a scene in longhand and have yeah. this really scrappy, full of holes, sketchy mm. version. And then when I'm typing it up, I edit it and then re-edit it and then re-edit okay. it. So it's... It, it does feel different, though. It's a different yeah. relationship with the words. So do you find that as well? Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, I find when I do do something longhand, um, I'm surprised at how, you know, if I'm writing something on the on the screen, I edit while I go constantly. Yeah. But actually, I get more down if I just do it in longhand. I don't know whether it's being of an age where you had to, like, at least write your college essays by hand and stuff. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, I think it's surprising how much you can just get out in the page when you do it by hand first. Yeah, so, it know. also seems to have a fluency or something. The mm, sentences, yeah, exactly, the shape yeah. of the sentences comes to you more easily. I find when it's yeah. longhand rather than when you're typing up, but then the typing up is better for seeing the little flaws in it and being able to go back easily. And yeah, so, yeah and do both. all those rewrites. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. But you know, we were talking about acting uh, then, and you know, each of your each of your novels is is told in a different voice of a different, a very different character, and they and they are all very distinctive voices. Thank how, you. Um, no, that's great. But but how much do you think your acting background and having to inhabit different characters plays into that? You know, that interest in and ability to channel these different narrative voices. Yeah, hugely. I mean, it's it's if you're going to write first person, which I almost always do, yeah. it's basically the same skill. You're taking mm-hmm. your this character and your aim is to make this a, a three-dimensional person and draw the audience into their world so much that they see this whole story through the character's needs and biases and they come out feeling like they know this character intimate, as intimately mm-hmm. and inside out as you would a best friend's. And that's exactly what you're doing with a book like this, where you can let the audience... This is, especially, this is quite introspective. You're trying to let the audience right into this person's heart and let them know him inside mm-hmm. out. I mean, it's the same impulse at the heart of writing and acting, I think, which is to, to get yourself out of the way and allow the story of this imaginary person to have its space and mm-hmm. to be brought to an audience. I don't know if that makes any yeah, sense. No, but does, you're, yeah. you're, you're trying to give this character and their story that space. And when you when you do channel a, a new voice, yeah. how difficult is it to shift into that mode? Because presumably, when you're you know when you're working on a stage production, you're not immediately you know there's there's a, at least a, some sort of a gap between leaving one off and having had a very intense experience with it and starting off again. Um, how do you sort of switch? Do you give yourself a big break between books to channel the new voice or is it literally, okay, that one's finished, I need to start. Oh, geez, no, no, I take a, couple of, take a couple of months off. Oh, okay. and, but it's not exactly off because I'll be doing the edits on that on yeah. the last one. But it's also sort of, you know, you need space to tick it around in your head and figure out what on earth you're doing hmm. with a new book. Um, I think... I'm kind of lucky because um, I tend to love working on a book until a certain point, maybe two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through, where your brain starts going, bored now, maybe yeah. I'll... Do you know what I... You, you, know yes. moment you're like, you know what I should do? I should really clear out the attic. The attic's a mess. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, look at the cooker. Oh, you know, maybe mm. I should, you know, dye the cat purple. Yeah, just <laughs> anything. Your brain's just looking for stuff that you can do. And I was always... A bit like that anyway. I was always a person going into the library to see if everybody else would come out for coffee. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a point, though, where one of the things that your head does is come up with an idea for another book Hmm. and go, oh, this would be really cool. Let's think about this one instead. Looking in the other direction. Anything to take your mind off. Yeah. Yeah, and that uh, one will be brilliant. I know this one is being really hard work right now, but that one's going to be so good to think about that one. So I've got the start, luckily, Usually, touch wood, jeez, but in my head <laughs> before the last one finishes. So then it's a matter of just letting it sort of tick around mm. and percolate. And until this book, you know, each of the novels in the, in, from the point of view of the murder squad detectives is, is a character who is, you know, they sort of feed off each other. Mm. Um, so it's, it's generally a character we have met before, sort of takes up the, the voice. How does, how does that evolve? How, how did, you know, I mean, it's... How do you go from one character to the next? It sort of happened accidentally to start with because I was finishing in the woods and thinking, well, what do I do if by some incredible chance this gets published and people want Mm -hmm. another book? Am I going to do the standard series thing where 
you follow the one main character through all kind of the little ups and downs mm. of life. Well, I don't really want to do that. I love reading those series. But what I want to write about is the, you know, the huge turning points in people's lives where you know that whatever they decide, their life's going to be defined by that. Mm. And there's a limit to how many of those turning points yes. you get in one <laughs> lifetime, you know, especially that you're aware of. If I keep doing that to the same character every two years, he's, uh, he's going to be in a straitjacket yeah. by about book three. He'll not be <laughs> capable of solving any crimes. Right, exactly. He's going to be sitting under his bed with something <laughs> pulled over his head. But he's been through so enough. Went, <laughs> really. And so I went, okay, that's probably, I can't keep doing that to the character. I don't want to write the sort of, you know, the gentler ups and downs, like, you know, um, the P.D. James, the Adam Dalgleish series, because I like mm. reading them. But So, well, the only other thing you can do is switch narrator. And I really like the idea of allowing a different perspective on the same mm. events. Again, it probably goes back to the actor thing, where a play is an entirely different play from every character's yeah. perspective, because, you know, we're all the main character yeah. in our own story and also events look so different mm. like anybody who has siblings knows that if you talk about that <laughs> argument you had when you were eight it's a totally different argument yeah. from your perspective and from you know your brothers or sisters and I like that I like the idea that the reality lies somehow in between all the viewpoints mm. and that other people can be seeing something and see seeing the same thing you are and seeing an entirely different thing and mm. I, I like the idea of, of kind of giving a bit of validity to that and yeah. seeing what this murder squad looks like from different perspectives, what this relationship looks like, what this character looks like from different perspectives. So uh, what I was doing was kind of towards the end of the book when the new idea popped up, it seemed usually to have a good match in With a character. Yeah. Who was already there. Who was already there. Yeah. Or else there would be a character there where I'd be going, this person has more story. This person mm. has, has a story of their own to tell and deserves centre stage for a while. Yeah. And uh, are you ever tempted to, to bring some of the earlier narrators back to be a narrator once more? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, do you know what it is? I, it, it sounds ridiculous. It's, it probably sounds really wanky, but I'd love to figure out what they're doing now. And the only uh, <laughs> way I can do that is by you know, writing the yeah. book and figuring that. But I don't actually have... I haven't so far had an idea that would gel with any of those characters yeah. and that would... I kind of tend to try and match up the theme of the book with the overarching theme that within the character's personality and their mm. life. Like, if you, if you don't do that, if the theme of the book is disengaged from the character's main preoccupations, I think it makes for a weaker book. Because yeah. it makes for a book where the narrator and the plot are separate and disconnected. Mm. And I think you do get that a lot in the, in the series that follow the one yes, yeah. narrative. Because, you know, if, if, a narr if, if a character's sort of the, the themes that have been crucial to him or her are, you know, family, love, and the role of memory, and th there's a limit to how many books you can write about yeah, that. Yeah, they can only have relate yeah. to so many yeah. big events. Yeah, so you need to separate them out a little bit. Mm. And I like the fact that by switching narrator, I can make sure that the narrator and the plot are quite integrated, quite interwoven. Mm. So that means that if I'm going to bring back a narrator from the past, it would have to be an idea I had that struck on those themes that are crucial mm. to them again. I just haven't had that idea yet. Yes. So never say never. Yeah, yeah no, never say never. And do you have a favourite of all the narrators? Because as I said, those voices are so different. Yeah. 
Um, do you have a favourite, I suppose, to write and a favourite as a sort of, yeah. you know, special place in your heart? <laughs> well, the, I have to say, uh, Frank Mackey in Faithful oh, Touch, he is, a lot I think of fun he's, to write. Well, he's definitely he one of my favourites. to write. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure he's necessarily someone I'd want to be mates with mm. because <laughs> he would mess you over in a heartbeat if it happened to suit his agenda. But he was so much fun to write because yeah. if you're somebody who, like most of us, spends a fair bit of time working out how to you know, do the right thing and do right by other people. It's a lot of fun to write somebody who does not give a damn. He has his few mm. priorities and everything else can basically... Yeah. Are we allowed to swear? Can basically yeah. get lost. <laughs> oh, very well played. <laughs> there you go. But he's... I mean, the one that's always going to have a special place in my heart is, is Robin in the woods because... Uh. Well, I was writing that and practically nobody knew I was writing it because mm. I didn't want to be like telling everybody and then it went nowhere and it's that, no, you know, everybody's got a novel yeah. under their bed. I did, didn't want to say anything till I knew it was going to go somewhere. And so nobody knew about this and I, I was so broke. I was a really broke actor. There were, there were weeks where it was like, okay, bread or milk, but not. Uh. So it, it felt a little bit like it was me in this book and it's, it, it was my one big mm. shot. So yeah, I'm always going to feel pretty attached to that one. Is there any chance of returning and possibly Again, no spoilers to anyone who hasn't read that book, but any more revelations about certain things that happened to Rob? Yeah, I, I'm not <laughs> I saying think a lot no, of people you know, know what yeah, I'm referring to. But that was really delicate, you don't fair play to you. Thank you. Totally non-spoilery. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if, if I found the right book idea, I would totally go back to Rob. Absolutely. But right. it just hasn't popped yeah. up yet. And there's no point in forcing it. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, just for the sake of it. It's just going to come out wrong. Yeah. And you know, I know that when you were you were growing up, you you lived in all over the world, yeah. really, both in in uh, Malawi and in in Italy. How do you think that affected your, the way you were able to observe the world around you? Because you know, a lot of people That's who grew up moving around a lot as a child do say that they it creates a sense of distance. It it completely changes the way you approach places, and you you notice that an awful lot of actors are international brats as well. You ah. get a lot of us winding up in the arts. And I think some of it might be that we're more comfortable with the idea of impermanence and instability, but mm. I think some of it is that you've got to be pretty good at observing little cultural nuances, because if you're going to be dropped into a new country every few years, you'd better be good at this, because otherwise you're not going to make friends and you're not yeah. going to you know, find your way into this new situation. So I think you're less likely to take things for granted than somebody who's grown up in the same culture, mm. quite deeply rooted. You know, there are way, even at the most obvious level, um, how far apart do we sit? That's mm. not the same from culture to culture. And if you've always grown up in one, you'll take for granted that there is one right way to do this. Whereas yeah. if you're switching, you have to notice, okay, people here sit much further apart than I'm used to, mm. and they're much less physical. And when I move from Italy to Ireland, I'd probably better not be doing that <laughs> with people, or people are going to think I'm flirting, are going to think I'm flirting with them. And I'm going to get yeah. myself into some fairly confusing situations. <laughs> so you have to pick that up fairly quickly. And it makes you notice things that mm. I think would be easier to take for granted. And if you're a writer or an actor, that's useful, because then you can bring those observations in as little indicators of what's going on in a scene yeah. because you've spotted them. And, you know, over the, the last 12 years, um, you know, when you started out writing, as you said, did you see it, did you even hope that it would sort of replace acting as the central part of your working life? 
or at the time, did you even see it as, you know, just almost a borderline hobby? <laughs> what, what sort of expectations did you have? I mean, at first, like at first I just had an idea. I just had the idea for In the Woods. Mm. I was working on an archaeological dig between two shows and I, th there was a wood near the dig and I thought that'd be a great place for kids to play. And then instead of stopping there like a normal person, I went, okay, so what if three kids ran in there to play and only one came out and he mm. didn't have any memory of what had happened to the other two? Like, what would that do to you growing up? And what if he became a detective and a case brought him back to that wood? And I sort of scribbled the idea down and went off to do the next show. But I really wanted to know what, had, what would happen? What mm -hmm. would happen to that person? And nobody else was going to write it for me. So I had no choice but to go and write the book if I really wanted to know. And I, I didn't think I could write a whole book because I'd never tried. Mm -hmm. But I figured I can probably write one scene mm -hmm. and maybe another scene and then maybe a <laughs> chapter and then, whoa, look, at that's a whole uh. chapter. I think I only realized that I was properly serious about this when I <laughs> found myself turning down acting work. Oh. Because I wanted to finish it. If you know any actors, they do yeah. not turn down work. They don't. <laughs> Unless they're a whole lot more successful than I was. So once I start, started actually turning down a show, because I really wanted to finish this, I knew, no, hang on. I'm really serious about this, and I, I am really hoping that it goes yeah. somewhere. But I didn't... No, I didn't ever think this far ahead. I was yeah. just hoping I could finish it. <laughs> and how much do you miss acting now? Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, I miss the the, the social side, and I miss yeah. the the that interaction of being able to bounce the energy around with other mm. people. But you know, I get little fixes here and there. I do readings oh. now and then with a really good little theatre company. So just you that your, little fix. Keep your hand in. Yeah. You, were, you weren't tempted to demand a leading role in the TV adaptation <laughs> that's going to be hitting our screens in the not so distant future. Do you know what? Back when I actually wrote In the Woods, I wrote a tiny two-line part for a red-headed archaeologist. Now, <gasps> if this is ever a movie, I am doing that. <laughs> and then I aged out because most of oh. the people working on archaeological digs are not in their 40s. You, know? you, could, you could be some, I don't know, somebody who went back as a mature student. Mature student archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. Not too, oh, maybe it is too late. They're probably, they probably I think they're done. <laughs> um, and I know you're not actively involved in the, in the TV production, um, you know, on, no. a, on a sort of writing, on a creative level. No, I'm not involved at all. Mm. I was going to be initially because I thought it was going to be a straight up adaptation, right? Mm. But then it became clear that it's it's actually more of a, a total reimagination of the books. And I went, okay, I'm not going to be useful on this. I am going to be stressing everybody out. I'm going to be mm. the writer going, eh, it's not like that in the book. <laughs> you know, and you, nobody wants that. So I better just back off and let them do their job. And I'll be over here doing my job on book eight. Mm. There's, there's so many great people involved. Yeah. There's an amazing cast and I don't know if what comes out is going to have anything at all to do with the books, mm -hmm. but it's, I'm pretty sure it's going to be good. Yeah. So, um, And actors are getting work. Yeah. This for, no, that's a <laughs> really Irish big actors. deal. Yeah. Irish actors are getting work. And I know how hard it is to get work in mm. this town. So it is this... I mean, that makes me so happy. You're spreading the, the acting love. Yeah, there's, there's more <laughs> actors working. This is a good thing. And just before we, we open the floor to questions, uh, can you say anything about book number eight, which you alluded to just there? <laughs> I think, I think I'm about halfway through it. Um, the main thing I wanted to do was with book eight, there were two things, right? I wanted it to be less bloody introspective. <laughs> because if anybody's read this, there is a lot of introspection. And I really enjoyed writing this up until the last two weeks where I suddenly went, 
he needs to pull his head out of his arse to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I just, all that introspection. So while, what I wanted to do was do the exact opposite. I want to do something with much, I want to see if I can write something that is much less introspective and much more somebody who functions through action rather than through thought. And I also want it to be shorter because I write bloody doorstops. And, but I, I really, I'm in awe of writers who don't, of mm. writers, you know, Donald Ryan, The Spinning yeah. Heart, or Daniel Woodrow with Winter's Bone. Those are short books, but you still get your money's worth mm. because they, just, they don't need all those words. They don't need that many words. Just every sentence is so condensed that it packs enough punch for about 12. And I would love to see if I can do something like that. Now, I, I, kind of hate even saying this because then I'll be here in a couple of years going with this massive uh, 700 but page it's shorter tone. than the other ones <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's what I'm aiming for anyway I'd well, like to try that well I'm sure we're all looking forward to it and uh, now I will open it to the floor does anybody have any questions I can see you in the dazzling lights yes over there second row down thank you um, you mentioned that place was one of the things that you start off with. Um, and I noticed, as reading the books, that you know there was a ghost estate, lovely big, fancy houses. Um, so maybe talk a little about how you choose your places or how important they are for you. See, I have a, a kind of thing about how charged places can get with emotion and memory. And I sort of blame that on, on how much moving around I did as a kid, because what it meant was when you leave a place, you're leaving an entire phase of your life, you're leaving an entire set of memories behind. And I was doing that before you know, WhatsApp and Skype and internet access. So when I left a, a place and a set of friends, to a large extent, they were gone. Like, you could write letters, but when my best mate left Malawi for Denmark when we were nine or 10, the letters taking six weeks each way so the the separation is huge and it's it's linked up with place very much so the idea of place as a repository of memory and of a part of your life is is a really important one to me and i think that's what that's what i do when i'm writing the books is i'm thinking about the place as almost a, a not quite a personification but the the locus a point in somebody's life, of memories or a phase in someone's life that charge up this place with, so that they become inextricably linked. And I think that's why I kind of have to start with the place before almost anything else, and then, re and then find out what it is that's charging up this place for the narrator. Um, any more questions? Oh, yeah, there's a question. Hi. There. Hi, Tom. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, it's an interesting thing about luck. One, one of my sort of pet theories about luck is that people often use it as a way of not talking about the fact that they're quite talented. Huh. You know, you often, quite often, often hear people say, don't they, you know, I was just very lucky, you know, I had a lot of luck with that, you know, and you think, no, you're actually talented, and, and that's the sort of almost the taboo, you know, so luck becomes a kind of way of displacing talking about talent, I think, sometimes, because um, it's kind of frowned on to do that, you know. Um, but I, I just had kind of two responses, and they're kind of quite big themes, so you might, you might just for reasons of time, just want to respond to one of them. My first kind of um, um, response is about gender. So, you know, in this novel, you've got obviously a male protagonist. And, um, you know, we're hearing a lot through the Me Too generation at the moment about how men can't talk about women's experience or can't talk to women's experience. They've got to just listen. But obviously you feel that you can talk about a male character and you can go into a, a male character is that because for you character sort of transcends gender or do you have to kind of 
recalibrate your kind of um, own psychological state to, to move into another gender. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah, you have. I think I'll just oh, stop there because that sorry. was kind of my main, my main, no, no, my main. Sorry, I, th I didn't mean to talk over you. I think, I mean, you totally have to recalibrate your state to move into any other character, and but that's what actors do. That's what sort of you're trained and practiced in doing. And of course, gender is one of the the differences that shape experience, and so we're going to shape a character, and so it's going to be a big leap to write from the other opposite perspective. But. I don't think it's the biggest leap you can have, right? I don't think it's a, the single biggest defining factor about a person. One of my best friends is a guy, and I have more in common with him than I would with Paris Hilton, even in spite of the fact that we both have the same body parts. So I think writing somebody like her would be more of a leap for me, or writing you know, somebody who's been living in a hut in Somalia her whole life, in spite of the fact that we're both women, is much more difficult than writing a guy who's living in Dublin, uh, you know, white, straight guy who went to Trinity who's living in Dublin. That's much less of a leap. I think the, the gender issue in the book has kind of been brought to the fore because of the timing, because of the whole, the whole Me Too movement, but it wasn't the only or even the primary facet that I was thinking about in defining Toby as who he is. It's funny that what doesn't get brought out a lot, what hasn't really been pinpointed, I, get it, I think it's because of the, the timing and the context, is the fact that the major thing defining his experience and his, the ease with which he's navigated life is his social class. Mm. It's not the, I mean, gender plays a role, don't get me wrong, it definitely plays a role, but it's as Declan says to him, right in the first scene, social class has shaped the ease with which he breezes through so many things. If he didn't come from a family that had generations of affluence and security and confidence behind it, he wouldn't be having the same experience of life at all. So I think that, yeah, sorry, to go back to your original question, it is a big leap to be trying to see the world from, through the eyes of another gender. But you're not going to always write yourself anyway, as a writer who's writing first person. I'm writing people, you know, I, I write murderers, and I've never killed anybody. And you have to be willing, and you have to accept that it's possible to write from somebody else's perspective. Otherwise, what are we doing? Am I going to just always write some 40-something international brat, you know? Uh, does that make sense? Am I, is, was that an answer, mm -hmm. give or take? Yeah. I think it's a responsibility, like you can't, if I was going to write that woman living in a hut in Somalia, I had bloody better do my research and I had bloody better do it right and do it justice. So I think there are leaps of identity or leaps of character that carry a huge amount of responsibility. In this one it was a brain injury. I did a lot of research on traumatic brain injury because if you're going to do something like that, if you're going to write something like that, you had better take that responsibility seriously. So I do think that moving, shifting identity as a writer isn't just like, well, I felt like it. You've got to take it seriously if you're going to do it, but I, I think it needs to be on the table. Uh, do we have any more questions? Uh, yep, the second row down. I think someone's coming from around. 
Hello, and Hi. thanks a million for your time today, both of you. Very much appreciated. Thank you for coming. Um, just touching kind of on what, one of the other questions, obviously there's a really song, strong sense of place in especially Dublin Murder Squad, and the geography of it is so Dublin, like whether it's like Cassie Sandy Mount, Faithful Place, Stony Batter. Firstly, is that something that the, is that something that's important to you? But secondly, how do you balance something being so quintessentially Dublin, but hopefully having some universality to it to someone who picks it up in Missouri? Yeah, I, do, I hope I do. Touch wood. I, it is important to me. Like this is. Like I said, I'm an international, but I'm not from anywhere in particular. But the nearest I've got to home is this. I've been here since 1990. Like, this is, as far as I'm concerned, the nearest I'm ever getting to a home. And that means a lot to me. That's a brilliant thing to have. That's, and I find places in particular, like the Liberties, which shows up in Faithful Place, where people go back for generations. You know, people are rooted in this to the extent that your relationship with somebody can be shaped by the fact that your granddad hated their granddad. That is... There's something magic to me about that. It's extremely exotic, and, and I'm fascinated by it. So that kind of thing, the, the fact of Dublin having such deep roots does matter a lot to me, and I try really hard to get it right. And the fact of it having such individual neighbourhoods where Stony Batter isn't the same as Sandy Mount, isn't the same as the Liberties, isn't the same as, you know, Harold's Cross, or the, where the Wish Home is more or less in Harold's Cross. It's not... Sorry? I was wondering... I was yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I figure it's more inland. You know, this tall Georgian terrace, it's Rathmines, Rathgar, Harold's Cross, somewhere in there. But it matters to me that I know the difference. There's no other city in the world where I can tell you, oh, well, that neighbourhood may be only a five-minute walk away, but here mm. are the seven ways it's different. So because I love knowing that, I love trying to put it into the books. And um, I think in some ways, the more specific you are and the more you get that right, the more universal it becomes. Because neighbourhoods everywhere, Missouri or wherever, they all have that distinct flavour that you only know if you are from there. Only, only people, you only know if it's your home. And so I think that sense of knowing somewhere in such fine texture that you know it's home, that translates, even if the specifics don't. Or I hope, anyway. And they're also really written in a very authentic Hiberno-Irish, <laughs> which, you know, I do, I do wonder. I, I love that Americans are, you know, are devouring, devouring it because Stephen King reviewed your, your old influence. I'm still picking my job <laughs> reviewed the floor. <laughs> he reviewed The Witch Elm for The New York Times. And uh, there was something very funny if you read the review of Stephen King sort of quoting Dublin slang <laughs> in the review. Um, how important is it to you to, to just keep that undi unexplained, undiluted Hiberno-Irish? Because I know they, the books don't really get changed, don't they not, for the American no. editions? I mean, I'm pretty careful with that because on the one hand, I, I don't want to change it. I, like some characters, like Toby is much more mid-Atlantic, mm. but characters who would speak Hiberno-English, I want them to do that. Mm. But at the same time, you don't want to be unintelligible. Yeah. You're not doing your job if a reader is picking up and going, what on yeah. earth did you just Media say? Media sort of glossary yeah. at the back. Yeah. So I try to make it clear from context mm. so that even if you may not know exactly what, you know, a gee bag is, mm. you could probably <laughs> figure out that's not a compliment. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I occasionally get very you know, strict <laughs> emails from the Polish translator going, please explain gee bag. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say, explain gee bag? <laughs> the ultimate question. <laughs> what is bollocks? <laughs> Uh, but that's probably part of their appeal, you know, to an international reader. It enhances the the experience. Of, well, I you love know, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. I love books that are in in 
heavily flavoured dialect, mm. the more the better, because I want to hear those rhythms. I like rhythms that I don't hear in everyday life. I like learning words where I'm going, I don't know what that means, but it sounds amazing. I'd like to call somebody that next time <laughs> they know me. <laughs> so I, I hope yeah. other people, I'm just hoping other people will get some of that same Authentic richness flavor. of rhythm. Yeah. Do we have time for any more questions? Yeah, do we have any more? Oh, yes. There's... Um, I really enjoy that there's a great crescendo to the end of your books. It really comes along and, and gives a real sense of urgency. How do you avoid having it ramble as you kind of follow the character's journey or rushing through it to get to the next book? Thank you. I, I'm not sure I always do avoid it rambling, especially kind of in the middle. Um, once you know where you're building to, right, once you know what the, the, the moments the climactic moment is. I think it becomes easier not to ramble. It was easier in, it, to a certain extent when it's the detectives or the narrators. It's easier not to ramble because they have such a clear objective, right? They always, it's like interrogation scenes. You know what objective everyone is going in with. The detective wants the information. The other person wants to not give up the information. It's, very, it's a very clear arc. It's a clear journey. This was a little harder, especially in the middle, because his objective wasn't so clear. What he wanted, he wanted to, to put himself back together. He wanted to find out what, what had happened with this skull, that showed, how that skull had got in the witch elm. But that's less of a direct, um, yeah, that's less of a direct line. But once you realize where you're building to, even unconsciously, where, where the character is going, whether he knows it or not, it becomes easier to keep them on that line. So I think it, it probably shows, there are probably bits where it shows in the books where I still hadn't quite found that, even if I go, go back and try to, to clear up some of the, the undergrowth around the edges. I think it probably still shows where I hadn't found that straight track yet. But after that, the character thing, I think, helps to keep you from rushing on towards the next book. Because if you're being honest about the character, they can't get from A to B too quickly. You have to know what would get this character from this point to this point. Like in this book, there is that big moment where he does something that I was not expecting. If you're going to get somebody there, you have to be truthful about what would actually take him there. What would it take to get him to this point? And that keeps you from skipping over bits. I, you know, if I, if I as an actor couldn't get up on stage and play it, then there's something wrong. I've done something wrong. I've skipped a step or made a false move. Any more questions? I have a question about the... I'm up here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, ah, yes. I'm just a voice, it doesn't matter. It's, it's like in a book. Um, what you said about other writers writing shorter text but still having the punch, is that genuinely an aspiration of yours? Do you really think that you would be satisfied if you didn't write another one of these? Yeah, I like trying something new. I realised I'm, I'm not happy uh, too far in my comfort zone. I don't particularly like being, doing something that I'm too sure I know how to do. I think that's one reason why I moved away from the murder squad. I was starting to feel a little bit like I might have the hang of this now. And I don't like feeling like I have the hang of this. I like trying something that I don't know whether I'm able to do or not. And I'm not saying, if this book, if book eight does in fact turn out to be shorter than the rest, <laughs> please God, I'm not saying I'll stick with the short ones from then on. Because I probably won't. I like big, lush huge, sprawling books. I like those. I like reading them. I like writing them. But I'd like to find out whether I can do it. I'd like to find out... I'd like to try and 
polish up or try and learn that skill of being able to write something that packs more in and doesn't sprawl all over the place, doesn't go off on digressions and tangents and somebody's backstory and somebody's <laughs> bit of introspection. I'd like to write something more condensed and just see what that's like. But then, no, of course, I'm going to go hopefully try and find something else to do. Um, I saw somebody had their hand over there. Yes. Uh, yes, uh, second row um, on this side. Yeah. You pass the pass it mic down. down. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Sorry about all that. Um, I really love the very intense, kind of involved friendships that you have in the books, like, say, Rob and Cassie, or Cassie and the gang who she has to investigate when she's undercover. Because often in fiction, I suppose, the kind of deepest relationships are romantic. So it's really yes. lovely to see, to see the friendships. And I was wondering, just when you were talking about travelling around and you know, losing friends when, before the days of the internet, do you think that comes at all from you having to build up the skills of like, developing friendships quickly when you went from place to place, or, or what's behind it, do you think? I wonder, I hadn't thought about that, but I think exactly like you said, there's so much emphasis placed on romantic relationships, there's a lot of emphasis placed on family relationships, but I found very few books that explore just how intense and how crucial and how important friendships can be. Like, I think it's perfectly possible to live a healthy, fulfilled, happy life without a romantic relationship or without you know, having kids, for example. But I'm not sure it's possible to do it without having real friends. And for me, growing up, friendships were just so hugely important. I don't know, maybe it was because of all the moving around, but I'm thinking back you know, to college when the, the, the charge I got when you'd see, you know, whatever guy you happen to fancy that month, that was nothing compared to this click of absolute rightness when I saw my, when I walked into a room and there were my friends. That had a, a, a strength and a power and a joy to it that at that stage, no romantic relationship had ever come close to. And I think that's not given enough weight in the arts in the same way. The, the, the power that it holds in so many of our lives just doesn't get a lot of space, I don't think. And I, I love writing about it. I enjoy writing about it. Thanks very much. Uh, do we have time for one more question? Do we have, does somebody have, somebody has their, I don't know, is there a hand up there? Somebody has their hand up in the second row here. Um, I just wanted to ask yeah. about your okay. writing routine. Do oh. you have one or is it just kind of? Do you know what, my ideal writing routine is different from my real one. My ideal <laughs> writing routine is to get, like, write until like three in the morning and then sleep till like 11 and then, you know. But I have small kids, so I write when they're at school. That's mm -hmm. it. And that's, it's kind of good because I'm, a, I'm an awful procrastinator. You know, I'm always looking for the metaphorical equivalent of finding friends to drag out of the library for <laughs> coffee. But when you know you've got X amount of hours before the kids are home from school and they want you to, you know, build a fort, then you get as much done as you possibly can before that, that moment. It's, it's good. It's, it it keeps, you, keeps you focused. And on that positive note, um, we, will, we will end this uh, fascinating discussion. Can I just say thanks a million to you, Anna. Thanks oh, for doing thank this you. and for, for keeping, having so many interesting things to ask. And oh, you're very welcome. Thank and you. thank you. And, uh, <laughs> thank you guys for coming along.